Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about this episode. It's been a busy few weeks. I was in Italy. I was in Ukraine. This week, I was at West Point for Sanders Conference, where we had Colonel General Swarsky from the Ukrainian Land Forces give the closing comments. It was wonderful. Right now, I'm at Fort Linderwood giving a presentation on the Battle of Kiev. So I'm on the road, a little busy, but I did want to not bring you an episode. So the episode you're about to listen to is just something I've been working on really for years. Probably will be a paper, and I thought I'd share it with you and try something new, but it's the top 10 things that we do or do not need for urban warfare training infrastructure. Well, enjoy the show. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. So I've been looking at urban warfare training sites for over 10 years, all over the world, from Israel to Germany to all over the United States to, I mean, literally around the world. I've almost become like a connoisseur or private reviewer of the capabilities that these sites have. I mean, the actual urban warfare training sites. We used to call them mount sites, military operations on urban terrain. We actually replaced that in U.S. Army doctrine with the term urban operations, according to doctrine, to account for that fact that you have people. Because like you know, I say that urban, by definition, urban warfare, urban means you have buildings, so man-made features on top of natural terrain. You have people and you have infrastructure. Unfortunately, we usually revert to just one part of the urban triad, as our doctrine calls it, when we're doing urban warfare training. But I digress. So I've been looking at these sites as in where we train for urban combat, where we put our soldiers in to train the fundamentals of urban operations as we define it. Each site, you can see within it either the armies or the service, because I I travel to the Marine Corps sites as well, or to private sites all around the world. Each one of them, if you dig into their history, contain the thoughts on the training needs for the urban environment during the time that it was built, or when it was expanded, or when it was remodeled. But there's a a service culture, a, a thinking about what the urban combat requirements are and they've changed to be honest i mean i can trace many of the urban warfare training sites some of them go back to world war ii there's ones in germany that were real villages that were just uh, taken over part of the training areas and became the german army urban warfare training sites or really to be honest the u.s military a lot of them came out in the, the 70s the 80s the 90s Really after, to be honest, after Mogadishu, this is what services do. They provide money for urban warfare training or gaps. And then you have to think about the global war on terrorism as many of the urban warfare training sites were remodeled. And there are different variations, especially within the U.S. military. We have what we call home station training sites, which according to doctrine, the most you're supposed to get up to during a home 
station training site was about 25 buildings, a CACTIF. And then you're at the national training centers or the combat training centers, the dirt combat training centers, you'd have a bigger site, everything from 20, 40, 500 buildings. And I've done an episode, if you haven't heard those, go back and I purposely interviewed every commander of every dirt and other CTC, combat training center. So the National Training Center for Irwin, California, the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, the Joint Multinational Training Center in Germany, the Mission Command Training Program, all of them to talk about how, what are the venues that we give our soldiers to train in. But I've also traveled, like I said, you're to Israel site in Tel Azim, to multiple sites in Israel because they have a lot of urban warfare requirements. They know what environment they're going to or National Guard sites like the Indiana National Guard's Muscatatuck Training Center or UK and Copil Downs. Just so many ones and each one of them reflect so much. But I've also been a part of service level assessments as in the U.S. Army's assessments of what is needed to replicate the urban environment to support training requirements and training ideals of like where literally the chief of staff of the Army has said, I want more urban warfare training. Give me a training site that will facilitate that. Well, too often these assessments resort to massive physical requirements. Uh, I was a part of one that was ordered after we did a megacity study in, in 2014. Like, how do we train for a megacity? Well, I want you to build a megacity in the desert. You know, it'll cost $80 billion. It'll take 20 years to build. And once you're done, you'll have to go back and, and revalue your basically building contracts and recertify the first buildings. And then I was a part of a, a dense urban training strategy conference where you look at what are the requirements to train dense urban and it always resorts to we need bigger mock cities right we just need bigger or it resorts to another one which is actually one of the my 10 things that you do or don't need so they always resort to these big physical requirements of we need even to be very upfront even general milley said like i want an urban warfare training site where I can train an entire brigade for 72 hours or where I can fit an entire brigade and have the urban environment be the total operating environment for that brigade. And they went through the process of assessing all the combat training centers and building a dense urban, they called it the national urban site, but it was just a bigger plan to expand all the combat training centers. And of course that money was defunded for different reasons, but I've seen all the plans And all these plans will have this great variety of what the planning teams will say, okay, for training for urban environments around the world, from megacities to dense urban areas to whatever uh, realistic combat environments, you need this checklist of things. You need these type of buildings. You need this type of functional area. You need this, this, and this. This podcast is about what I think you need or you do not need when thinking about what the U.S. Army and other militaries need for urban warfare training infrastructure, where they actually go to practice the fundamentals or the realistic requirements of urban warfare training. So 
without any further ado, my top 10 list of things we need or do not need in urban warfare training infrastructure. Number one, skyscrapers. So let me explain that. Usually when I see these plans of, okay, in order to prepare for the future, we need you know lots more buildings and we need really tall buildings. I mean, I want a 10, 15, 20 foot story building to put on my urban warfare training site so we can practice clearing skyscrapers. Well, what I usually tell people is one, there's limited, very limited historical presence to needing to clear skyscrapers. But how do you clear a skyscraper? Well, of course, that depends on the rules of engagement, the context of the battle. But let's say, let's narrow our training requirements down to a high-intensity peer or near-peer complex situation. How do you clear a skyscraper? You don't. Because if an enemy puts himself in a skyscraper, then he's just made himself vulnerable. There's all kinds of fire control measures I can do to block, reduce that enemy in that skyscraper. But people resort because they think that urban warfare training against a high-intensity situation requires clearing buildings. So uh, it would take me a battalion to clear every room of a skyscraper. Okay, then don't. This is how we get to an $80 billion training site with five 20-story buildings in it to train for a very niche combat situation. When in the high-intensity fights that we're seeing around the world right now in Ukraine and other places, yes, there, there are really tall buildings that get reduced. And there are really tall buildings which you then re-infiltrate and, and shoot from within. It's just not on my list. It's, it's actually number one on my list as the things you do not need a skyscraper. Number two, virtual reality. So going back, and I can trace it to RAND reports all the way back to Black Hawk Down or the Battle of Mogadishu, after they come out of those, we do these assessments. Like I said, I, I've seen them, many of them. I've been a part of them. I say, okay, here's what we have to do. Like it costs too much to build a realistic urban environment, right? It just costs too much. I um, mean, it's just not possible. So we need to invest in virtual reality. In the 1990s, like there's a 1990-ish RAND report coming out of Mogadishu, and it says cost prohibitive invest in virtual reality. I strongly disagree that virtual reality is one of the pressing needs in order to prepare combat formations for urban warfare today. One, the technology is not there. The total immersion of virtual reality actually reduces all kinds of human factors of the cognitive load, the field of view, the realism that is the gap in training for urban warfare. So I strongly agree that it is the it is the black hole of army investments, virtual reality. We're getting to the point where we can do augmented reality. I'm all for. And I'm all for you know, integrating simulations and things. But the virtual reality goggles or virtual reality playing a video game to get you to urban warfare training, not needed, not measurable in improving training performance. I'm just, as an urban warfare student of urban warfare training sites, totally against them. So those are my two big, what you don't need. Although those are really big and really cost prohibitive, but just seem to keep popping up in these studies of what we need. Number three, 
which is actually number one. But number three on my top 10 list is battlefield effects. So my personal opinion, John Spencer's personal opinion, the biggest gap of urban warfare training is not the number of buildings, but rather the military's ability to replicate their weapons effects on and in the urban environment. If soldiers don't know what their weapons will do or how much concrete they'll penetrate, what their weapons can actually do in the urban terrain, even within the law of armed conflict and what protected sites in the in the in the second third order effects of the weapons on the environment, and this gets you down even like explosive weapons and urban terrain discussions, then they're not able to train the realistic tactics, techniques, procedures, planning. So in a combat training center, I think I, I saw this um, in a AUSA briefing and he said, you know, we can only replicate about 60% of battle effects. And if a listener doesn't know, battlefield effects is like a simulation. Um, and the easiest way to look at it is the U.S. Army uses a version of miles or basically laser tag. And when you go to a combat trainer, there are other, they're on the, they're on the every individual body, they're on every vehicle. There's ways to use satellite, um, you know, satellite talk to that vehicle and destroy the vehicle. If you like call in an artillery strike, and then there's a simulation on one side. And then, you know, the, the big indicators or the miles on a vehicle will go off. I don't believe we can do 60%, but if I did believe we can only, if we can do 60% of everything from a, you know, a rifle to a artillery piece to, um, you know, tank rounds. We can simulate all that with basically laser tag or if you do individual weapons, you can do simunitions, which is like paintball. If we could do 60%, I honestly believe you did an assessment of what can be simulated in urban train, you get down to about 10%. So you, you could only realistically replicate the effects of weapons and combat in the urban terrain to about 10%. You can't replicate, like a laser doesn't show you what's going to penetrate. Like if there's an enemy, and I've seen this so many times at um, in urban warfare training events when there's an alive op for, or even if there's a, a target inside, like how do you clear uh, a room when you have a known enemy inside of it? You do it from the outside. You don't enter... You know this ideal, and this, and and any listener already knows my thoughts on enter and clear a room is a very specialized tactic when you have the element of surprise and speed. Uh, but if the enemy knows you're there and it's an armed enemy, and he's waiting for you to, to go inside the room, you stacking up and going really fast into the room is just going to get people killed. If it if your weapon can have effect on the room and you know the person's in there, and you know that it's only the enemy in there, then you clear the you clear it in a different way in training if i can't even shoot through plywood with my laser tag weapons then i'm not going to know that or i'm not going to know if i if i if i am going to use a grenade let's say if i'm going to use a, a simulated grenade then i'm not going to learn that hey depending on what the building is made up of that might not be a good idea maybe the frag all comes takes out everybody that's staying on the outside of it Let's talk about the effects of <coughs> indirect fire, right? If I know I have an enemy in a identified, positive, identified building, and I want to use indirect because that's 
more likely in the, the situation we're seeing is once I use my drone or whatever it is to get closer, then I call in for indirect fire, discrete precision. If but how in training do I replicate that? Right? That nobody has it. I've never seen anybody have anything that can realistically replicate even indirect fire, let alone stuff going off inside you know, going through the building. But let's say you call in a fire on a building, then it's all you know this hand wave stuff that happens. Like, okay, don't go in that building. You already you dropped it. No, I, I need a battlefield effects. I need smoke um, generators, flash generators on the building. I need you know things that you know like drop in the building and close. You can't go in it. I need, which is totally doable, laser emitting devices inside the rooms that kill everybody inside the room if. If a, if a weapon was deployed against the building in the urban environment, you have to have the effects of the weapons on the enemy, on the terrain, and on the civilians that are always a part of the environment. So, you know, that's why this is number one on my things needed to train for urban warfare, whether you're talking a squad or a division, battlefield effects. And there's, I haven't seen anybody working hard on that. Number four on my top 10 list, combined arms training to include enablers. So this is, you could do a whole session on this, but urban warfare, listen to me, is not an infantry fight. It is not about clearing rooms. You know how much stacking on rooms and entering a room in a four-man stock, you know, center-fed room stuff I see in Ukraine? None. That's not, that's just for a different context. How much combined arms fighting I see or how much combined arms in all the historical case studies that me and my, um, my co-author for our historical case studies from, or from World War II or Tona, Stalingrad to all the way up to Fallujah 1, Fallujah 2, combined arms fighting in urban training. That is urban warfare. So if we have sites in our inventory, we're telling soldiers to go train and they're not capable of com training, combined arms training. And what do I mean by not capable? Let's say there's a site where there's all kinds of rules on, well, you can't have soldiers next to vehicles and you can't deploy this weapon or that weapon and this train, then, then it needs to go away. That, that site needs to go away or something needs to change. Because combined arms means you have all the arms. You have a way to replicate the fires. You have the mobile protected firepower, the tanks, the Bradleys, the strikers up there with you providing firepower, cover, uh, deployment to the last point of departure. You have engineering assets in there. You have all the combined arms, cyber, the drones i mean really if you don't have it in urban warfare you're not putting something in front of you a drone most likely is what we're seeing on the evolution of warfare now if you're not putting a commercial or whatever drone that is expendable in front of you then you're not being realistic because that's that is the current urban warfare fight is that's a part of the combined arms fight you're putting something in front of you it's not about building a 500 building uh site and then having the infantry 
breach on the outside, get to the first building, just start clearing all the all, all the all the buildings. That's not what's needed. This one thing isn't about how much money it will take. It's about the approach and all the tools you're bringing into this urban warfare training site. Now you could invest in things like I saw in the UK, which bar none, go back and listen to the podcast I did with the 4GD company, which integrates all the combined arms enablers, air power, as in uh, helicopter, uh, attack helicopter, uh, snipers, mortars, artillery, FOs, all the simulators that we've had in our systems for a long time. Uh, this UK company with the British Army have developed a way to have infantry and others in a physical site while they are tied in with a bunch of simulators where soldiers are in other simulators, like a sniper simulator, a, a call for fire simulator, a mortar simulator, and they're all integrated and seeing the same thing. What the person on the site sees the person in the simulator sees and it's replica it's it's fascinating but that's the need that the soldiers are not getting as a standard training event right now whether it's a home station training event or a dirt combat training center event has to be combined arms and i could we could do a study just on how to take our current sites and turn them into not infantry urban warfare training sites, but combined arms training sites. And what are the barriers to integrating that arm with that requirement? Because that's high intensity urban combat. It'll be more about bringing all your tools to bear once you've identified the enemy. And then, of course, somebody's got to move forward, but it's how do you combine those arms? I, uh, I hope I don't, I didn't sound like I was rambling there. All right, number five, strong points. As defined by doctrine, uh, again, if we do a mind shift, has nothing to do with money, a mind shift that we're going to fight in urban terrain, in urban warfare training sites against a peer or near peer enemy, whether we're defending or attacking, especially we love to attack, so let's do that, then we need to be attacking against strong points. I just literally two days ago, read a great interview by uh, of the commander of land forces in Ukraine, Colonel General Sierski, where he explained the fight in Bakhmut, which is right now the biggest urban fight that we've seen in Ukraine. And he talks about strong points, as in strong buildings made up of heavy clad concrete usually reinforced rebar with basements and that becoming fights within the fight so we need to start taking our urban warfare training sites we have right now and looking at which building would make the most sense to turn it into a strong point and it's something that an attacking force one we teach people how to strong point in general so if you're a defender all right which building are you going to why and then how you're going to reinforce it with anti Armor or ATGM capabilities, crew serve weapons, uh, anti personnel, anti tank things around it. You know, from all the history of strong points and how effective they are, you need to know how to build it and then you need to know how to reduce it. 
So that's something that would be, it's low cost. And actually the National Training Center has really done amazing work out for the for U.S. Army on building, having the Black Horse out for build strong points and require units coming through to practice what it takes to reduce a strong point. There have been battles and we're seeing them right now in Bakhmut that are weeks of trying to take one building, one strong point. So we need them. Number six on the list, subterranean. Look, so just like people treat the urban environment as a special environment, people treat the underground as special. Like, okay, we'll train that. Yeah, if we got some extra training time, we'll throw that on there. You know, the, the before we closed the asymmetric warfare group, they had a whole mobile training team that spent, I think it was like a billion dollars or something, and went and trained every brigade combat team in some amazing underground subterranean warfare tactics. There was a two-week course, there was a one-week course, there was one for engineers, one uh it was amazing. Uh but it was just an in mobile training team. So the soldiers that got it, that's great for them. They're still in, who knows? Um, but we treat it as like this special extra thing. Uh, and again, not that Ukraine yeah, the war in Ukraine is the only thing, but that's the most relevant battle urban battles. I'm talking about the battle of Kiev, the battle of Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, Mariupol, Bakhmut, Lyman, Rabizhna, you name it. Those are data points of evidence of, of requirements for training urban warfare. And the underground is a significant portion of it. So go back and listen to the interview I just did with my, my good friend, Mike Kaufman, when he talks about the differences in Bakhmut from east of the river and west of the river, east of the river, no basements in any of the buildings, west of the builder, basements, underground, subterranean. And that allows for the defenders to hold those buildings a lot longer because they can go into the underground to negate some of that, all of that artillery and rockets and bombs jading being dropped trying to clear the defenders out. If we're training in urban warfare training sites without underground, we're wrong. If we not, if we are discounting, because there are some sites that I know of in the US Army where there is underground, but usually it's, uh, well, that's not in play, it's just too hard. It, 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 look, it, it, it's like not having people on the, on the, in the urban training site, it's just not realistic. So number six is sub-training. Number seven, which is an interesting one, and I really, you know, I had to pick and choose. This was a, I have a long list, but I wanted it to be 10. So the number seven on my list is water obstacles running through the urban warfare training site. And really interesting, if you go to range 220 out at uh, 29 Palms, this is the only urban warfare training site. And, I'm, you know, I'm an Army guy. It's a really good one. But it's the only one that has a water obstacle. I'm like, well, how do they have a water obstacle in the desert? Are they pumping water in there? No, they have a, a ditch. The, the, the ditch is simulating, like we do, water. And it, it actually it really works. Because name a city, even, on our, even in our, our case studies that we've done, how many of those have, don't have a water obstacle running through cities? 
I don't know if any of them don't, but think about it. Like all the major battles, all the cities have water that run through them because that's part of supplying the civilization with what's needed. Even our own experiences in Jiwat, you know, Fallujah, Mosul, Ramadi, like they got water obstacles running through them, whether it's irrigation ditch or the main river. We need to put that in our urban warfare training sites. And it doesn't require water. Dig a dig a very large one. If you go to two twenty, it, it just I was really fascinated. Like, wow, this this is very realistic. That there is a water obstacle, and now there's bridges which are key terrains, right? Right. I mean, you could take my water if you wanted to. You say water obstacle, okay? I don't like it, John. Just say key terrain. The crossing points of water obstacles are absolutely key terrain. If you look at all anything I've done lately, it's been about blowing bridges, protecting bridges, fighting for bridges. Oh, you better get across the river because that's your fallback line. Like it just needs to be in there. And then again, that's going to be a lot cheaper than a skyscraper. Number eight, rubble. Some people get this. Uh, Cope Hill Downs has rubbleized a, a very large street. Uh, NTC has started to incorporate rubble. High intensity urban combat against a pure enemy there's going to be lots of fires, highly explosive fires that's going to block roads, it's going to destroy buildings. It's not, it should not be the clean and sterile urban warfare training sites of, I don't know what that's trying to replicate, of whatever era. And there have been some generals, like General Townsend, who came from back from the Battle of Missoula, like we have to get rubbleized and we have to get it realistic and for cultural reasons we haven't gotten there yes ntc and Cofield downs the two best i've ever seen we just need a lot more of it make it feel like a high intensity fight when soldiers get on the ground it needs tons and tons of rubble make it feel like there is high intensity urban combat happening or just had happening and lots of fires coming up so number eight was rubble number nine you could call it rubble, or it can be other things. Obstacles. You need obstacles on the battlefield. What I see is that because people like to practice a deliberate attack, they put an obstacle on the outside of the urban area, let alone the fact that it's just open and they didn't start in urban. They started in desert or wooded or rural or whatever, and then they hit the urban. Like, okay, yeah, it's a nodal city, whatever. And they breach the outside of it and they get in and then they start fighting. No, that's not realistic to urban battle that I've studied. You need lots of obstacles. Some of them not even visible by aerial reconnaissance. Some of them put out the last minute. You can go back and look at the article that me and Jason Drew wrote about uh, urban defensive tactics that have worked across time from everything from barriers to snipers to caches. If you want to train realistically for high-intensity urban combat, you better have a lot of exterior and interior obstacles that you must practice. Again, so put it in there to get this training requirement. So you practice what you're going to do when you face a either hastily laid or deliberately laid obstacle and how you're going to reduce it and practice your sosura or whatever capabilities you bring in 
do that you oh I, now I need I, I really should have brought a bulldozer with me or or an, whatever it is to help me keep moving forward to reach the assigned objective I've been given obstacles 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 so you'll practice obstacle reduction all right and the last thing on my list which I kind of have a pet project on this uh, so number ten on my list it's smoke. All right, what do I mean by smoke? So I wrote a whole report on this, like that one of the greatest obstacles in urban combat is it can sometimes be crossing the street because of all the things that are challenges in urban warfare, if you're attacking, is that they can see you. If you don't know where they are, there's there's cover issues, there's concealment issues. There, and smoke has historically been a very good tool for making it so that the defender, if you're attacking, can't see you. And that smoke is a lost art and a large science, as in like, we don't have the stuff to do it anymore. And I, I, I detailed in this report, you find at the Model Wars too, uh, where I go through smoke grenades, smoke pots, smoke generation on our vehicles that we all, it's all gone. We used to have smoke generators on our mechanized vehicles. You hit a button and it dumped diesel onto the manifold, not, Bam, lots of smoke. You need it. We don't have it. <clears throat> There's many ways to do it. But combine our formation, again, not just infantry, but infantry need more smoke too. You need smoke to enhance the tactics, techniques, and procedures that are realistic. And you can watch you know, Battle of Berlin or Major War II battles, and you see them deploying smoke and using sound tactics to not run across streets in the open. And, and in Ukraine, especially in the early months before even Russia started to adapt, you see a lot of deaths of people running across open areas in the urban terrain, which are everywhere, and just get taken out. Look, smoke is one of the tools. All urban warfare training sites, the, the, the training the event, so you can have smoke generation in the training site because, yes, you can fire smoke, and you should be firing smoke not just outside of the city, but depending on what the mission is and where you're going, it can be inside the city. It doesn't, that's no, there's no law of war that says you can't fire smoke. And I'm not going to get into that. That's, that's his own, own thing. But smoke is a very time-tested, proven thing that forces need to have. And we don't have it. And we need it in our training sites. And it's on the list. So I'm going to close it out with that. So those are 10 things you either do or do not need in urban warfare training infrastructure that should drive investments in and change the thinking where some of this could be done without investment. Others require investments, but they're, they're all things that I think as somebody has been looking at this for a little while that are needed in our urban warfare training infrastructure, the sites. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.